Now in our Through the Bible, book by book, <clears throat> as we're completing uh, the last long and uh, perhaps, I hope not, wearisome uh, aspect of our survey of scriptures, as we take it book by book, we've come to the sixth book of the Bible, the book of Joshua. And uh, I wonder how many have been able to read through the book of Joshua today. Would you raise your hand? Anyone who's read the book of Joshua through today? Here are two hands. Anyone else? Well, when you meet Joshua up in heaven, you can explain to him why you didn't have time. (laughs) Joshua is the guidebook to victory. What a tremendous book. I think there's no book in the Bible that's so packed with helpful, practical lessons as the book of Joshua. No book has been more helpful to me in grasping the principles of spiritual walk than the book of Joshua. And this includes all the books of the New Testament as well. There's no no book that's so challenging in its concepts and so thorough in its analysis of life than this book, if you know how to read it. There's a key, of course, to the book of Joshua as there is to every book of the Bible. And uh, that key is the pattern given to us in the New Testament. All these things happen unto us, Paul says, unto Israel as examples for us. That what Israel went through in their experiences, their actual historical experiences, become figures, become patterns, metaphors that we can apply to the spiritual battles, the spiritual journey, the pilgrimage upon which we are launched. And they have an exact and accurate uh, application to us. And if you read the book of the, the books of the Old Testament with this key in hand, it becomes a very vivid and a very fascinating book. I uh, almost uh, hesitate to begin this survey of the book of Joshua because... I am so captured by the the lessons involved in so many places through this book that I find that I tend to bog down in details. It's hard to keep going in an overall survey. And I hope you'll bear with me if I uh, and, and keep prodding me along a little bit so that uh, we can get through the book in the time allotted to us. For my tendency is to to stop and look more carefully at some of these tremendous illustrations of the spiritual life. There are two books of the Old Testament that I would strongly recommend that every Christian master its message. Two books that I particularly feel that every young Christian ought to know. One is the book of Joshua, the other is the book of Daniel. Uh, For these messages are primarily designed for young Christians as they're engaged in the, in the first uh, full impact of a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you feel that, if you feel the force of the opposing powers, the tremendous subtle deceptiveness of the principalities and powers against which we're engaged, as Paul puts it, uh, if, if this has come upon you so that you sense you're in the conflict, I urge upon you the book of Joshua and the book of Daniel. Now let's take a look at the book of Joshua. As you know, it follows the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, this is certainly in the wisdom and care of God that this order has been followed. 
because Deuteronomy, as we saw last week, our last study together, uh, introduces us to the great second law of the spiritual life. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which sets us free from the law of sin and death, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. And uh, it therefore uh, teaches us the principle which will lead us into the experience that is set forth in Joshua, the land of victory. Now, the book of Joshua falls into three main divisions. Chapters 1 through 4 give you the entrance into the land and all that's involved on how to get into the land. And, of course, if you're struggling with the uh, right now in the, in the, with the matter of how to enter into a life of victory in Christ, how to become, how to move out of the wilderness of doubt and restless wanderings and uh, mere subsistence as a Christian into the full-orbed blessing of a spirit-led experience. This is the section you ought to be concerned with. The entrance into the land, how Israel got out of the wilderness and into Canaan. Chapters 5 through 21 cover the conquest of the land and the many battles, the conflicts that were before them as they came into the land of promise. And chapters 22 and 24 through 24, which comprises largely messages from Joshua's own lips, set before us the perils in the land, the dangers that uh, uh, we must keep on guard against in order to remain in the place of victory that the land represents. Now, let's try to cover these quickly tonight. The first section, chapters 1 through 4, give us this entrance into the land. And the land of Israel, or Canaan, is a picture, as we've mentioned, of the spirit-filled life. The life that God intended for every Christian to live. There are no exceptions to this. The spirit-filled life is not a life for certain advanced saints. It is the provision made by by God for every one of his people. And this is pictured for us by the land of Canaan. Now, there's a beautiful description of this land in the opening verses of Joshua. Verses 2 through 9 give us a marvelous picture of it. In in verse 2, we read that God said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land which I am giving to them, the people of Israel. Here's a land that is given, just as the life in Christ is a, is a provision made available to you absolutely without effort on your part. It's given to you. It must be, as we'll see in the next verse, it must be a land that's possessed. But there's nothing you can do to obtain it other than to take it. And in the third verse, you'll notice that it, though it's a land that has been given, it still needs to be possessed. Title to it is the gift of God. Possession of it is a result of an obedient walk. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I promised to Moses. That is, you can have all that you will take. You can have every bit of the spiritual life 
that you want. You'll never get any more. God will never give you more than you're ready to take. So if you're not satisfied with where you are and with the degree of, of real experience of victory that you have, it's because you haven't really wanted anymore. You can have all you want. Every place where the sole of your foot will tread shall be given to you. And in the fourth verse, it, the land is described in its abundance. It's far-flung concepts. From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. An abundant land, a land flowing with milk and honey. A land in which you find all the room for all the expression of all that you need in every area of life. This is the land, an abundant land. And in verse 5, a land of conflict, yet victory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And one of the first things we learn in coming into this place of walking in the Spirit is that it's a place of conflict. But every conflict can be a victory. There need not be any defeats. It's a frontier, if you like. And there's nothing more exciting than life on a frontier. You've been watching television. You know that, don't you? <clears throat> All the exciting things that take place out on the Ponderosa uh, Ranch. Life on a frontier. And this is life in the victory of Christ. And verses 6 through 9 give us the secret of, of living in the land. It's a promise and a presence. An obedient heart and an empowered, empowering spirit. God said, be strong and of good courage, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. It's going to take courage. There's no drifting uh, aimlessly down with the crowd. You're going to have to walk against the stream. It's going to take courage. But be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. There's the book. There's the promise. There's that written word, which must be our, our prescribed uh, constant meditation and study, in order that we may know the truth, and the truth shall set us free. And with it, have not I commanded you? Be strong and of good courage, be not frightened, neither be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The accompanying presence of a Holy Spirit, an obedient heart, and an empowering spirit. And that's life in the land. Now in chapter 2, we have the remarkable story of Rahab and the spies. Those two spies that were sent out by Israel and they came into the house of Rahab. And it's, a, it's an intriguing tale, uh, as exciting as anything you'll find in the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, 
especially some of the recent issues. And uh, uh, you'll find that uh, when these spies came into the house of Rahab, she hid them under the flax on the roof as the men of the city were searching for them. And while they were hiding there under the flax in the roof, they learned a most startling secret. Because Rahab said to them something very remarkable. In verse 9 of chapter 2, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord, we Jerichoites, we inhabitants of Jericho, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God is he who is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. How long before these spies had entered into this city had these events that they heard of taken place? Forty years. In other words, for forty years the inhabitants of Jericho had been a defeated foe. Their hearts were melted. Israel could have gone in at any time and taken the land. Here was an utterly defeated foe. They were defeated before the armies even got anywhere close. They could have taken it at any time. How long have you been waiting? To enter in and take a defeated foe in your life. Look at verses 22 and 20 through 24 about the spies. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. For the pursuers had made search all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men came down again from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and moreover all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of us. After three days, they came back and told the story, and on the third day, notice the opening verse of chapter 3, early in the morning, they were into the land. Does that remind you of anything? What happened on the third day, early in the morning? The resurrection, isn't it? And it's in resurrection power that they enter in to take the land of Israel. As the land is a picture of Christ in his risen life, working in and through us to make us victor over all that defeats us and that has hindered us and fettered us and bound us before this time. Now, before they get into the land, there must come the crossing of the Jordan River. Between them and the land still flowed the Jordan River. And this story about the crossing of the Jordan is very similar, you'll notice, to the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And in many ways, 
they're a picture of the same thing. They're both a picture of death. If any man had ventured into the Red Sea without the waters having been parted, he was going into his death. If any man had ventured into the flood waters of the Jordan without the waters being parted, he was going into death. So that the crossing of these is a picture of death. Now, as you perhaps already know, the Red Sea is a picture of Christ's death for you and for me. When he cut off, cut us off from the world and its attitudes and its ways and its opinions. When you became a Christian, you changed your ideas, your sense of values, didn't you? The, your baptism was your expression of the fact that you were passing out of one life into another. Your whole way of thinking, your whole attitude was changed. That's the Red Sea. But the Jordan is a picture of your death with Christ, which brings your Adamic life to an end. The Red Sea is his death for you. The Jordan is your death with him. Whereon you as a, and all that you are in Adam comes to an end. Your reliance on yourself. Your desire to have your own program, to live after the, uh, to, to uh, make your own decisions and set your own goals and all these things comes to an end. And you discover that you can't have his life for your program. If you want to hold on to your program, then you can only have your old fallen Adamic life to live it with. But if you want his program, his life, then you'll also have his program, which is one of victory. And you cross either the Red Sea or the, the Jordan River when you accept the principle that's involved in this. When you just face it and make up your mind, all right, this is what you want for me, Lord, this is what it will be. That's when you cross the Jordan River. That's what happened with, with Israel as they went in. Notice verse 7 of chapter 3. The Lord said to Joshua, uh, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. How do you cross the Jordan River? Well, the same way you cross the Red Sea. By faith. That's all. And by obedience. By faith. God is saying to Joshua here, the same way that I led Moses to bring Israel through the Red Sea, so I will lead you to bring Israel through the Jordan. Same way. Same way. You experience the life of Christ for every moment in the very same way that you claim the death of Christ for your sins. The same faith that got you out of Egypt is the same faith that gets you into the land. As Paul puts it in Colossians 2, 6, As therefore ye received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Same way. Same way. Was it any harder for Israel to get out of, uh, across the Red Jordan River than it was to cross the Red Sea? No. Same thing, was it? They just walked down and the waters rolled back and right on through they went. Same thing. No problem. 
And it's no different, you see, in this matter of walking into the land. It's just simply believing that God is in you, that God is, what he said about you is true. That he has cut off the old life, and you agree to that. And that he's given you a new basis, and that will work. And you believe it, and you walk out on that basis. Thank you, Lord, for being in me to do through me everything that needs to be done. That's entering the land. Now, in chapter 4, you have two memorials that were set up by Israel. One was 12 stones on the bank of the river, which was a reminder to them continually of the principle of faith to which they had now returned after the years of wandering in the wilderness. And uh, this is a... Uh, this is, I think, representative of the Lord's Supper, which is a continual reminder to us of that principle of life by which we are to live. And then there were twelve stones in the river, unseen. They placed them there before the waters came back over, which are a picture for us of how Jesus Christ stayed in the place of death long enough until every area of my life and your life, every area of our life passed out of the control of self into the control of Christ. He stayed there. As you read the account, you'll see that they were to put the stones where the feet of the priest stood while all of Israel passed over onto the other side. Now in chapter 5, you come to the second section, chapters 5 through 21, of the conquest of the land. And what a mighty story this is. The first thing that the, that the Israelites had seen as they came to the borders of the land were the great enemies. And square in their pathway as they contemplated moving out into the conquest of this land was this tremendous walled city of Jericho with its huge walls. There are some of the most laughable theories being produced today as to how the walls of Jericho fell down. I have read some stories that just make me almost roll on the floor in amusement. It's been suggested, for instance, that as the Israelites marched around the walls of Jericho and blew on their trumpets, that the sound of the trumpets set up a vibration in the walls that shook them down until they just came collapsing at last because of the vibration. The vibration. But this seems most unlikely when you remember the fact that these walls were 300 feet thick uh, and about 60 feet high. And I doubt if there's any kind of vibration that's capable of shaking that kind of a wall down. Uh, in fact, the foundations of these walls have been discovered through the explorations of Garstang, the archaeologist, and even Rahab's house on the wall has been unearthed again. Well, uh, Jericho was the first obstacle in their pathway, but the first thing that Israel had to deal with was not Jericho. In chapter 5, we learned that it was, they had something to do in their own, with their own lives first. God never begins his conquest with the problem. You'll discover that if you haven't already. He begins with you. You're the first problem. And there are three things that Israel had to do before they began to assault the enemies in the land. First, there was circumcision. They had to be circumcised. The whole generation that had come out of Egypt... Were, had died in the wilderness. They had been circumcised when they left the land. They had died in the wilderness. A whole new generation had grown up uncircumcised. And so when they came into the land, the first act was an act of circumcision. 
Now, as we know from the New Testament, circumcision is a picture of a surrendered heart. It's called a circumcised heart in the New Testament. A heart in which the reliance on the flesh has been put aside, cut off, and it's a surrendered heart. Second, they celebrated the Passover for the first time after they'd come out of the wilderness. The Passover. And the Passover is a glimpse back to the night when the Lord passed over and the angel of death passed over their house because they were protected under the sheltering blood of a lamb. And it's always a picture for us of the day of our regeneration, redemption, when God in grace passed over us and it pictures a thankful heart. A heart that looks back to that day of deliverance, that day when Christ became our Passover, sacrificed for us. A thankful heart. And with that comes a new food. The manna ceased on the day after they came into the land. They began to eat of the full satisfying uh, corn and food of the land. So much more than manna. Manna, as near as I can discover, the nearest thing that we have to manna today is cornflakes. How would you like cornflakes every day for for breakfast, for lunch, and for supper, every day for 40 years? They were plenty tired of cornflakes when they got into the land of Canaan. Because it was never intended to be their food for 40 years. They fed on that which sustained their strength but never satisfied them. But when they came into the land, there's that which satisfies. And uh, this is uh, marked for us by this celebration of the Passover. And then the third thing, before their conquest began, Joshua went out to plan the strategy of of taking the city of Jericho. And he must have been a perplexed and bewildered man. How could he, with this army of, of, uh, of people untrained in battle, take this huge walled city. And you remember that as he looked out in the moonlight overlooking the city, he saw a man with a drawn sword standing there. And he said to him, Are you on our side or on the enemy's? And the man said, Nay, but as a captain of the host of the Lord am I come. That is, I haven't come to take sides. I've come to take over. This isn't your job to plan the strategy of battle. That's my job. I have given the city of Jericho into your hands, he said. And then he told him how to do it. The most remarkable attack, the most remarkable battle plan that has ever been arranged. He had these people simply march around the city once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, seven times, blow the trumpets, and the walls fell down. All there was to it. Nothing else. Now what is Jericho? Here's the first obstacle the first conflict in the land. And through this book, you'll find in this section, there are three uh, major obstacles to be overcome before the land is theirs. And these picture for us the three types of problems which confront us as we walk the Christian life. And the first one is Jericho. Jericho was an immense fortress, an outward challenge to them, a seemingly insuperable obstacle, insurmountable. They had no way to to take this city. And it pictures for us those problems, which usually, by the way, occur most frequently at the beginning of our 
of our experience of walking in the Spirit, where we are confronted with something perhaps that has baffled us and mocked us for years. Maybe it's a habit that we've had for a long time, never, never able to overcome. Maybe it's a circumstance in which we live uh, that has that is, is a constant threat to our spiritual life. And nothing we seem to be able to do can change it. Some uh, uh, situation in which we're placed. Somebody we have to work with. Some problem that just seems absolutely insurmountable to us. And baffles us. Mocks us. Well, there's an amazing uh, thing about these type of problems. When we, when we follow the strategy outlined here, which was simply to walk around it, displaying the ark of God, that is the presence of God in their midst, and, and shouting the, uh, playing, uh, shouting with the trumpets, that is playing with the trumpets, the shout of triumph, the walls just fall down. This kind of problem solves itself. I have seen this happen so many times that a problem of this nature, when there comes a complete change of attitude toward it, that the problem disappears. That it wasn't, it wasn't as, uh, it wasn't the, the obstacle that it seemed. That it was our attitude toward it that was the obstacle. And as soon as that attitude changes, then the problem just disappears. Have you ever discovered that? There, uh, you see, God had Israel march around there six days, seven days. Why, why that long? Well, it took them that long to change their attitude toward Jericho. They thought all this time, what a huge place. How will we ever take this place? What an absolutely insurmountable city. And day after day, walking around it, uh, they, they, they saw this city. But day after day, as they walked, they also had time to think about the God in their midst and the power that he displayed and what he could do. And gradually their attitude changed. And on the seventh day, they shouted in triumph and the walls fell down. Nothing to it. Then there's a next obstacle in their path is the little city of Ai. And before you get to Ai, you have the story of Achan, the sin of Achan, where, who, who coveted something that was forbidden. And he took it and hid it. And when they went up against Ai, Israel was utterly defeated. And Joshua fell on his face before the Lord and said, what's the reason for this? And God said to him, Joshua, get up off your face. Don't pray to me now. There's something in the life. There's sin in the camp. Go search it out. And finally, as they filtered down through all the ranks of Israel, they came to Achan and his family. And Achan confessed. And Ai, of course, is a picture for us, a beautiful picture for us, of those inward problems arising out of our own nature. Our own lust for that which God says we cannot have, must not have. Our desire to play the hypocrite and to have it anyway. To pretend we don't have it, but to take it. And when we do, we discover that we have utterly removed every, all the, the defenses of our life and we're prey to every, every evil force that comes our way. We have no power to stand. There's failure. There's defeat. But the minute this was confessed, then they go up to Ai, and Ai is no problem either. 
it's a battle, but it's no problem. They win the victory over the, the problems of the flesh. And then comes Gibeon and Beth Horon. And these two battles together comprise a picture for us of the special attacks of Satan upon a believer. For both of them are a picture of the approach that the devil takes toward us. Now Gibeon was a story of a deception. How these uh, Gibeonites dressed themselves up in old clothes. It's a, it's a humorous tale. How they dressed themselves up in old clothes and they took old moldy bread and tattered uh, uh, wine uh, bottles, that is the bags, the wine skins that they used, old moldy, dusty wine skins and put them upon thin, emaciated donkeys and took this dusty, moldy bread and threw it in sacks over their shoulder and went out to meet Joshua. And when Joshua met them, he said, where are you from? Oh, they said, we're from a country far away, way, way off. And we've heard of the mighty prowess of Israel. And we've come over here to make a a league with you. We've come to make a treaty with you. And Joshua said, how do I know that you are what you claim to be? And they said, well, look, look at our provisions here. We took this bread fresh from the oven just when we left. And look how moldy and dry it is. And our clothes, how, how ragged and tattered they are. We've traveled so far and our donkeys are all worn out. And Joshua believed them. And because, and when he believed them, he made a league with them. And when they'd signed the treaty, they walked over the hill and there was Gibeon. And they realized they'd been trapped, tricked, deceived by an angel of light, by a satanic Deception, which appeared to be right and good and trustworthy, but was not. And so they uh, had to stick by their treaty, and the Gibeonites were spared, and as a result they became thorns in their sides for the rest of Israel's history. Now that's the story of Gibeon, an angel of light. And then comes Beth Horon, when all the kings... Of the, Israel, of the Canaanites banded together and came roaring down in a tremendous league of nations against Joshua. And it was a mighty battle in which Israel was outnumbered greatly. And God gave the victory by that remarkable uh, arresting of the sun in its flight, the, the long day of Joshua, where at last victory came. But what is this a picture of? But it's a picture of the, of, of, of the devil when he comes as a roaring lion. In some overwhelming catastrophe that just seems to shatter us. That shakes our faith. That makes us cry out, God, what is happening to me? Why should this thing happen to me? And we seem to be just swept off our feet by a terrible, shattering, staggering thing. But God, uh, Joshua stood fast in faith, depending upon God to simply work a miracle. And God worked the miracle. The righteous shall never be moved, we're told. And this is why in, in Ephesians, Paul tells us, when the enemy comes like that, just stand still, that's all. Stand on the promise of God. Just stand, that's all. And he'll be defeated. Now, I must hurry along. The rest of the section is simply a mopping up operation. Uh, 
After the battle of Beth Horn, the land was practically theirs, but there were individual victories. The victory of Caleb and Othniel and the Josephites and the setting aside of the cities of refuge all have wonderful lessons in themselves of the audacity of faith, the taking of that which God has promised in individual lives. And then you come to the last section, which is chapters 22 through 24. And here we learn uh, the, the perils that, that beset us and how to stay in the land, the things we need to particularly avoid. And they're threefold. First of all, in chapter 22, you have the story of the, of the misunderstood motives that were ascribed to the Reubenites and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh. They built an altar on the wrong side of the Jordan. And when the other tribes of Israel heard of this, they became indignant because this to them was idolatry and a, uh, and a uh, uh, disobedience to God's command. And so they gathered themselves together and they came to make war against their own brethren. And when they got down there, the, the Reubenites and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh were tremendously upset. And they cried before God and they said, before God, this is not a rebellion. Let us, let, let, let's, let us explain. And they explained that they were afraid that their children, uh, in time to come, their children might, uh, uh, the children of the tribes in the land might say to the tribes outside the land, uh, what have you to do with the Lord our God? That is, God has made it a boundary here at the Jordan River. You don't belong to us. You're outside of our our nation. And uh, so they said, we built this altar not to worship at, not to offer sacrifices for, but simply to remind us that we belong with the people over on the other side of Jordan. And it's a wonderful picture for us here of the need, of the peril of improper criticism, of ascribing wrong motives to people. And it threatens the, a schism, an open warfare between believers. And if there's anything that will drive you out of the land of victory, it's to get engaged in a controversy over misunderstood motives. And then the second peril is incomplete obedience. In chapter 3, you have the account of how, though they had the land given to them, they did not possess all of it. <clears throat> they left some of it uncaptured. And uh, as a result, the tribes which they failed to wipe out, the people whose, whom they permitted to live, became snares and thorns to them the rest of their history. Incomplete obedience. And the third area of defeat and of peril is in chapter 24, where Israel or Joshua appearing before the people in a great message to them, challenging them to walk before the Lord their God, says to them, Choose ye this day whom you will serve. That is, you think that you can go on in sort of a neutral position between following the devil and following the Lord. You can't do it. You can't do it. You, he's saying exactly what Jesus said centuries later. No man can serve two masters. You must either serve God or serve Satan, one or the other. You cannot serve both, and there's no intermediate ground. 
And Israel responded in verse 16 and 18 by saying, Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. And who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove us out before all, drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Grave sounding words. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. You cannot do it. And the greatest peril of all of the Christian faith is this sense of false confidence. This sense of, well, certainly I can do what God wants. I've got what it takes. I know the scriptures. I've been raised in the right church. I've got what it takes to walk faithfully and honestly before God. Of course I'll serve the Lord. Don't talk to me about apostasy. Defeat, backsliding, you don't know who you're talking to. I'm a Schofield reference Bible Christian. (laughs) I've been through the course. I can serve the Lord. Joshua says, you cannot serve God. And the greatest lesson of the spiritual life is to learn that you have no strength to stand in yourself. No matter how long you've walked before God, you never have any moment strength to stand yourself that your strength comes out of weakness your sense of dependence your sense of constant need of God's strength is the only thing that will keep you and Joshua wise old man that he was said you cannot serve the Lord he's a holy God he's a jealous God If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he'll turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. But the people said to Joshua, No, Joshua, you don't know what you're talking about. We're going to serve the Lord anyway. And that's why the next book is the book of Judges, the book of defeat. Now, this is a great book. And I urge you to study it through yourself, carefully, page by page, because every page will speak to you about something that's happening to you, if you read it in this way. Can we bow in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, what marvels of knowledge and wisdom are wrapped up in this remarkable book that you have given to us. And how incomparably poverty-stricken we are because we do not know it. We neglect it. We do not listen to it. How we stumble on from defeat to defeat in bitter disillusionment oftentimes, scarcely realizing what the reason is because we're so woefully untaught in by thy spirit. Teach us now to open the book and ask the blessed Holy Spirit himself to make it real to us that we understand it and grasp it and walk in the strength of it. But we pray in thy name. Amen.